Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is an extra special episode of the VentureFizz podcast, as it is a milestone episode. Welcome to episode 250, that's 250. This means that we have over 10 days worth of entrepreneurial and investor interviews, which is incredibly amazing. So keeping a podcast going for this long takes a ton of time and effort, but it's super easy to do when you love doing it. I'm just a massive fan of the entrepreneurial journey as each story is unique and inspirational. Well, for episode 250, I couldn't think of a better guest than Jonathan Bush, founder and CEO of Zeus Health. Yes, his last name is Bush, as in the same Bush family where his uncle and cousin were both president of the United States. But Jonathan has been following his own journey as a very successful healthcare entrepreneur. He co-founded and led Athena Health to a public offering with this early cloud-based healthcare software provider. His latest company, Zeus Health, is an even larger swing as the company is looking to build out the platform to disrupt the healthcare industry the same way Stripe disrupted payments by building the industry's first shared development platform backed by a shared data record. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like trends across the healthcare and tech industry, his background growing up, and how his time spent as an EMT and a combat medic gave him the inside look at the inefficiencies across the healthcare industry, the full life cycle story of Athena Health in terms of the original business model and how the company evolved to being the leading provider of cloud-based services for electronic medical records, revenue cycle management, medical billing, and more all the details on Zeus Health and how they are disrupting the healthcare industry, plus the details on their growth plans ahead, an overview of Firefly Health, where Jonathan is the company's executive chairman, advice for first-time founders on building startups in the healthcare industry, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that VentureFizz can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, uh, Keith. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you because we have a ton to talk about uh, the companies that you've built, that you're building now. There's a tremendous amount to cover here. And I just thought we'd leap right into the industry in itself that you've been transforming for so many years, that being healthcare. And healthcare is one of these industries. There's others, but this is one that affects everybody. And there is so much going on in this area. And there's so much opportunity for entrepreneurs to hopefully you know, disrupt and improve the healthcare industry. So I want to get your point of view on kind of where are things in the healthcare industry? Because it was always considered like this laggard, underserved industry. Like, are we like, there's been a lot of money going to startups that are investing into hopefully fixing things that are broken. So where, where does things stand with the healthcare industry and, and what are some of the areas that you still think are ripe for disruption? Yeah, you know, I always thought of healthcare as the, uh, I've seven kids and so I've read Harry Potter out loud many times. Uh, <laughs> and I always think of healthcare as like the manifestation of Dudley Dursley, who for years we just look at as such a bad, just bad, fat, 
person. And we realized it was just that he was the only child and we could, they, the, the Dursleys just couldn't let him fail. And as a result, he sort of got a little rotten. And, uh, and he really meant well inside. He wanted to be good. And in the end, he's good. And uh, healthcare is the same way. You know, if it were a market, if it were a market for services and goods, it would probably be very efficient and reliable. But we love it so much. It's so important to us. It's our only, you know, it's a safety net. And so we make, we spoil it. We make it fat and unaccountable in ways, uh, in, in, in marketplace ways, in order to make it safer for people in safety net ways. And we create these deep vertical monopolies that charge whatever they want to people and, you know, don't get better at things because they are allowed to keep doing everything. Uh, and of late, we've seen, you know, maybe, maybe cautiously uh, a break in that uh, with the emergence of digital health. So you've got you know, we've we've had the ability to deliver telemedicine forever. We've all, but 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 none of us, like other than watching industry, you know, keynotes on PowerPoint, had ever really experienced it. Maybe we like got a prescription filled on Teladoc once, but it wasn't core to our existence. And with the pandemic, we all did every tele everything, telebar. You know, never mind telemedicine, <laughs> right? God yeah, bless Drizzly, but. Uh, that resulted in uh, a spike in adoption curve of, of all kinds of uh, clinical approaches using technology that uh, allowed a much more focused factory type of approach. You know, there are now entire companies that only do irritable bowel syndrome management. They do it only, you know, that one little sub piece of, of gastroenterology but they do it so much better than the occasional visit to a GI's office, right? And pre, pre, you know, early stage alcohol abuse and anxiety and depression and certain cancers and diabetes. I mean, you've got more and more and more of these uh, focus factories that take advantage of the um, the pandemic to build delivery systems that don't depend on the fixed cost overhead and the frictional drag of moving your ass to an office. Uh, and there's still the need for offices, but now we've got these urgent care center chains and other places where you can rent in-person care uh, in your virtual model. And, and we've now had enough time in this to see both the clinical and financial consequences, and they're huge. They're just, at any price, they're just better clinically. You know, the net promoter scores are three, four times, three, 400% higher uh, obviously in healthcare being high 300% higher from not liked very much is not that big a deal but it you know it's something so that's where i am in this context thing is that there's this huge free trial offer of digital first care uh that the world has uh has had and liked and so we've seen what 40 billion dollars in last year alone just last year go into 4,000, maybe more digital health companies taking on all manner of medicine, every single piece where there's a behavioral determinant, where having Jiminy Cricket in your ear all the time is better than going in for one big procedure or taking one big drug or, or you know, having one big conversation. And what we've discovered is actually, yeah, almost everything, even the drugs we were used to taking before work a lot better if somebody's 
in our ear monitoring our taking and our experience of it and our dosage of it, being more precise, uh, using the ability to be always on, uh, using the ability of digital connection uh, to refine care and the behavior that goes with it. Uh, this is just a huge time. It's just unbelievable. It's exciting to see what's going on out there because it's just, I think it, it's got to be the only industry where you walk in and you don't know what you're getting charged for. Like, you don't know right. what, like, they just like show up and you're like, okay. And then you get like a bill and it's like, what, what, what just happened? There's a, <laughs> I wish I could find it. Venrock, one of the great venture capital firms funded some sort of, sort of no names movement thing that made videos. And there was this video of this, the healthcare supermarket. And the guy shows up with his, you know, the lady's like, there's the supermarket music playing. And she goes, Boop. Whoa. whoa, puts it in the bag. And the guy's like, what, 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 what? He's like, nothing. It's like, well, what, was it a lot? <laughs> Seemed like a lot to me. And like, well, what, how much? Maybe I don't want it. Oh, I don't we'll need that. <laughs> well, we'll send you a bill in a couple months. But wait, I, I mean, I'm right here. What, could I just, could I take it out of my bag? Boop. You know, next one. <laughs> it's crazy it's crazy yeah it's crazy so so i i think there's a real appetite for um disassembling the the blob the 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 bundle and this is in a lot of our lives you know google has sort of assembled this weird assortment of our privacy our time and really good word processing uh, you know into and, and free mail into one bundle and said look if I can have your privacy and your time, I'll give you, you know, G Suite and, and free mail. And you're like, uh, I get, I, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, it's cheaper than Microsoft Office and it allows me to share. I mean, I don't know, sure. And, and, and now we're saying, wait a minute, maybe I'll just pay for the, maybe I'll get my privacy back and pay for my word processing or whatever. And healthcare is going through a similar thing. Maybe that bundle, maybe all of that blob in one thing, unlimited use of every specialist in the whole country. Uh, I'd turn that back in if I could have an intelligent digital agent that would genuinely wrap me, route me to a specialist that was the right one. Maybe I'd say, shit, I don't care. I, I, I want, if I trust this digital agent, I, I'll let them pick my GI solution or whatever. And that's, that's what, you know, that's what Firefly is doing. That's what a lot of these companies are focused on um, is taking advantage of the end of the geograph, geographic, you know, where your body is constraint um, to build more focused, more specialized, more continuous, lower cost solutions. But they all need tech. They need engineers. Yeah, personalized this, this medicine. A, and Yeah, it's, it is. People talk about personalized medicine as if it's like, give me your genotype and I'll concoct a perfect drug. That's great too. Makes good keynote address. But there's a lot of room between that and what we've got. Just keeping track of how you're taking the same old dumb drug as before and whether it's giving you gas, you know, that's, that's a personalization, that's an, a, a personalization of medicine. And that's where these companies are right now. And these are this, the tech stacks that they're building. It's an exciting time. It'll be cool to see how it all unfolds, but let's talk about, so your background story. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, I was very shy as a child. Uh, I grew up in New York city. I had three friends um, and none of them went to my school. So uh, I was particularly quiet in my school. Uh, and then 
at 16 years old, I had a great uncle let me use his outboard speedboat at my grandmother's house in Florida, and I decided to be an extrovert. But uh, until then, that was my 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 gig was I loved work. I loved hard projects. I would go complain to my mother that I needed a harder project. Um, I was mechanical. I liked making things with my hands. I was, um, yeah, it's kind of a geek. Um, but I was dyslexic, so I wasn't an intellectual geek. I wasn't a good student. Um, and uh, went to boarding school where I was a, a really standout underperformer, like uniquely bad at boarding school. Uh, but I sort of hung in there and tried to get help and tried to figure it out and and found other people who were failing at the same time. And we developed great friendships, sort of a breakfast club. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, found a way out of it. I applied to every college that I thought I should apply to, got rejected from all of them. Uh, but then my uncle went, ran for president. I was like, you know, I really want to go to college anyway. <laughs> uh, and I volunteered in New Hampshire for the George Bush for president in 1987 campaign. And, uh, and that's where I started to come of age where I could find that I could connect with people and that there were causes that were bigger than me that were worth fighting for. And, um, you know, I had a lot of experiences like that. After that, I ended up driving an ambulance for the city of New Orleans at one point from six at night to six in the morning. I went, volunteered for Operation Desert Storm and uh, didn't go because by the time I got through boot camp, the war was over. But uh, had what did these... those experiences teach you? Because that was I was I didn't know that about your background. Obviously, I know you, you know, in terms of the, you know your family and your entrepreneurship efforts. But when I was starting to dig into the foundational years as an EMT and combat med medic, I was like, wow. So, so what did that experience teach you? Well, uh, it taught me more about leadership than Harvard Business School. Even though I love Harvard Business School, uh, just getting people who don't have to listen to you uh, to listen to you. <laughs> Uh, is easier to do if you might die if they don't. You know, it's a, it just makes things more intense. And as a young, distractible man, you know, twenty-ish years, I was sort of in the low twenties for all of those experiences. Um, it had my attention. You know, danger and physical trauma and blood and just tactical situations had my attention and were uh, inspiring and made me care about. Um, the larger problems behind the, these these tragedies and experiences that I had uh, in a way that held my attention later in life when I had to put away my rubber gloves and not solve problems with my hands, but have to start using my fancy pants education, et cetera. Uh, but that was the most formative thing were those three experiences of, um, of healthcare uh, in a hands-on way. And uh, they've shaped my every aspect of my life ever since because because that was like your entry point into this world that ended up being your you know entrepreneurial journey too yeah uh you know i, I i'm a systems thinker i like seeing how all the pieces hang together or don't or whether there's a uh, some some drips between the lip and the cup that somebody could do something about and that came from the opportunity to be literally inside like a little kanban card you know this ambulance you go and get someone in the back room of their house and you stabilize them and then you get them in and you get in the emergency room and then they go to the you know triage and then they go to these either go to the medical side or the psych side or the trauma side and you literally see how the you feel palpably how the system works and then you start to sort of 
say, well, shit, why didn't I just do that all the way? But if, if all of this was about getting them that drug, like we have that in the backpack in the ambulance. Like, why didn't I just give them the drug, sit with them for an hour and, you know, we just would have saved $10,000 in an ambulance for five hours. You know, why did we, uh, so, so that, that got me excited in a way that I think if I read about it in a MPH course, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able, at least I personally just wouldn't have been able to relate. Um, and it stuck with me and, and, and getting inside of a problem at the first hand level is still my favorite thing to do. And, you know, what brought me back to work after sort of forced retirement from Athena uh, and, uh, and what I think is uh, the most transcendent experience to get into a process, imagine it different and then actually make it different. Well, that's a good segue. So like, I definitely want to get into kind of the, the path down to starting Athena health. So, uh, you know, you graduated from Wesleyan, you spent some time as a strategy consultant with Booz Allen, went to B school at HBS. So at what point did you decide, Hey, I want to start a company and help like, my you dad Todd sell Park? his business in there. I was, I, I was, a my dad was in the fortune 20,000. Um, he had a very small investment management firm and, uh, you know, I could not, I, he really, it was called Jay Bush and company. And, you know, there was a fair amount of, uh, suggestive energy that maybe, uh, the next Jay Bush would take exactly. over the company. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's high net worth individual wealth management. And I was like, I don't know, I'm, you know, I've been fully paid to go to private schools and private colleges. And now I'm going to keep the world safe for the 1% of the 1%. Like, ah, I don't know if I can get excited and, you know, driving the ambulance, you run into these people that are the other 1%, like all the way at the other end of the food chain. And, and uh, it was so much more inspiring uh, to imagine helping them, so much more challenging. Um, in most cases, no established way of doing so other than city services that are, you know, tragically bad and, you know, no one's, everyone's trying, but they're just tragically unsophisticated, unagile, slow to move, slow to change. Uh, and, and I got, you know, that was probably the biggest deal. And then, you know, the combination of seeing that I didn't want to be in my dad's business and working and dreaming all night with Todd Park. And, uh, you know, I had a big help my dad sell his business uh, to a big bank and uh, went to business school, wrote an application saying, I'm going to start a healthcare company. I'm going to be a healthcare entrepreneur and you're allowed on the bus. I'm going to use every class at business school to shape that company. And I'll give you all the credit in the world if you let me in. Uh, and they let me in. So I'm officially on the, vi uh, on, on your podcast, uh, giving them credit. <laughs> <laughs> now you met Todd at Booz Allen, right? That's how you met your right. co-founder Todd yeah. Park. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so what was the original plan? Because it started the out something a little bit plan, different. Yeah, it was it was a birth center? It was it was a maternity care company? My wife at the time was trying to figure out what she wanted to do, and she was going to nurse practitioner or certified nurse midwife school at NYU, and wanted to be a certified nurse midwife, and you know thought she wanted to be a doctor. She was a neurobio major, but she you know, and didn't like blood. <laughs> I was like, well, this is going to be hard. Uh, but anyway, you know, she was on this midwife idea, like this beautiful experience. She's helpful. And, and it's not the really sick people. It's sort of, well, you could be, you can be pregnant and not sick. That was a big breakthrough on the business. Uh, Cause those people who are pregnant and not sick 
need a different type of care model uh, to do maximally well. And, uh, and they weren't getting it. It wasn't available in the US. It was available everywhere else in the world, in England and France and Germany and you know, all over, but not here. So we thought, shit, let's do that. And uh, you know, maybe it'll be a lifestyle business and me and my former wife you know, will, uh, will, will run it as like sort of partners in crime, one clinical, one financial. Um, and once Todd and I got into it, it ended up being bigger than we thought it would be and you know, not as interesting to my, <laughs> my first wife. Uh, but that's how it got started. And, and we actually owned a birth center and we had, we, at the height, we were doing 3,000 babies a year. Uh, if you multiplied our monthly run rate, maybe 3,300. It's a really big, prosperous, not prosperous, a lot of low-income families with very low, couldn't, not on Medicaid, had to pay cash, migrant laborers, all kinds of people. Um, and it was the difficulty getting paid that led Athena to both die, that, that stage of its business die, and uh, rebirth as a you know, payment solution for entrepreneurial people. And that's how it really got going. I mean, Athena still today, I don't know the revenue, I don't know anything about the numbers anymore, but when I left in 2018, it was still probably 85% of the revenues was the billing. So Athena collector. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Okay. So, so then you, did you build it for your own use at that point in time and said, wait, that's right. That was right. It was a yeah. Ed Park, you know, the great Ed Park, CEO of Devoted, yep. younger brother of Todd, uh, brains of our operation, sat alone. We, you know, we didn't, we wanted to buy a system. We didn't want to build a system. Nobody had the system we wanted. We found an entrepreneur in San Diego who thought he was going to build a system. He needed engineering help. So Eddie went over to help them and he ended up saying, I'm building the whole thing myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we ended up just saying, thanks anyway. We'll, We'll build it ourselves, and uh, and you know, the rest is history, as they say. Well, at some point, I let I read that you started to build a business, and then someone actually wanted to purchase you, like acquire your company early on right. in the days. Yeah, the the, the 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 sort of I've been asked, you know, what, what was the moment at which you pivoted? You know, how did you pivot? What was the pivot? Well, that was the pivot from maternity care to sort of cloud-based billing and back office services. And yes, we had built those back office services for ourselves. And so we were just selling our own dog food to other dogs. Uh, and the final moment was, you know, we were really getting down to the wire and we needed to raise more money and nobody wanted to put more money in our birth center idea. And the, the last guy was this guy who, you know, said, look, yeah, he, he was representing an oil millionaire who wanted to diversify into healthcare. He wanted to put a I don't know the number, $100 million in healthcare. And I thought, here's, here's the last guy left. The only guy who wants to invest in healthcare hasn't heard about us. <laughs> I got to get him. And there we are in the slider rocker chairs in the birth center. And he says, uh, yeah, well, I got good news and bad news. You know, I actually don't think this midwife thing is going to work for you guys. And I can't invest in you. But I'm willing to value the software you've built so far at $11 million. And that was $1 million more than I was trying to value the entire company, including them. So I was like, well, let me think about it. And it became clear that literally the, this overhead function was worth more than the sum total of all. 
and uh, and we switched. But that guy was the key. Well, and and this is you know context like this is late '90s, like cloud, right? You're talking about building a cloud business when that wasn't a term. It was like ASP or like the cloud or, you know, it just like on-site, on-premise software. One of the many accidents of fate, you know, that led this was the birth center was in San Diego County. San Diego County was the first city in the country under a federal demonstration project to get DSL, to get high-speed internet at the storefront without a circuit frame rate, frame circuit, without a T1 line or a circuit uh, frame relay circuit. And so, we could for $40 a month, you know, add this digital signal to our copper wires and have decent 56K high-speed internet. <laughs> and, and, and those browser pages like came out of that. So uh, yeah, I mean, wow. And it was not a time where cloud was a thing. In fact, cloud really, for us, we, being a cloud-based business service came after Microsoft spent about $300 million on ads saying, come on, kids, let's go to the cloud. And they all dove through the TV set. And we were like, well, they just bought the word. Let's use it. Uh, and so we became a cloud-based business service. And then you went on to, you mentioned Venrock. So they were an early investor in the company. They were the, they were the, they were the, they were the, they were the lead. There were three VCs. They, they were actually the last people to give us a term sheet, but they wanted to be the lead and they were the most famous. And so they, they, uh, they put, you know, three and a half million dollars in 1999. Uh, and I'm assuming they did very well with it. Okay. So how did you start to scale the company? Cause obviously this is something that most doctor's offices probably weren't familiar with and why would they do this? And how am I going to access this product and the internet? Like, like this is like, <laughs> there's a lot of this nowadays, a lesson for modern companies that can't not say the word AI in the first 10 words of their pitch. Uh, you know, they didn't care if we were using carrier pigeons or the internet. They hated dealing with claims. It was a humiliation. It was a insult uh, to their, you know, intent, to their training, to their intellect, to everything. Just so, so Orwellian just cynical, negative, didn't make any sense. It was like the TPS report from that movie Office Space, you know? And these doctors were just enraged by it. And we said, look, we will take that shit on. And we will, we will, we will give you a new computer system, but we won't charge you for it. That's just the technology that we need to do to get you paid faster, quicker, uh, uh, faster, uh, losing less, collections and with less hassle on your part. And uh, that was the, you know, the pricing model for Athena was always just give us a small percentage of your collections and we'll, you'll make back more than you pay us in savings and, and improved collections. And the fact that it used the internet never came up yeah. um, in 90% in of our first, you know, 1000 customers. Well, I think that's a perfect example of you know, lessons learned for other entrepreneurs to follow product market fit. You've got a customer with a major problem that doesn't care what to pay to solve that. Cause it's such a headache that they don't want to deal with. Right. Right. And cloud-based worked was better because it was like cloud, like somewhere else, Scale. you know? Yeah. So, um, but it's a business service. We will, we, these are jobs to do that you have to do that you hate and suck at. <laughs> 
we will do them. We'll do them for less and we'll do them faster. All right. So you did, you know, expand into care coordination, EHR, uh, and went public in 2007. So what was, what was the, that day like when you went public? Oh, it was a fun day. I mean, the only thing that was hard was, you know, banks don't work for the people they underwrite. They work for the people who invest in the people they underwrite because the hedge fund manager is going to be there with that banker for years and years and years, day in and day out. And the entrepreneur goes public is going to see him for, you know, four months once. Uh, and so it was a little frustrating that they, you know, they, they bankers work to keep the price of our offering lower than I knew the market was willing to bid. And so we, it was my first experience with sort of, sort of inside baseball in Wall Street. Um, but uh, whatever, we got to be public, you know, and, and sure enough, as soon as the market trading began, the comp- company doubled in value and doubled again in the, you know, following year and, you know, proceeded to do well, probably too well in the early years. So when the, it caught up with itself, there was a two or three year period of flat stock, which made it attractive for an activist <laughs> uh, and made for a nice exit for me. Uh, uh, or a horrible exit for me, but but a but a timely, but a good one to get over with. Um, uh, but that was a great experience, and I recommended it. There's a lot of guys now are saying, "Don't go public. You can make as much, raise as much money off your portfolio, off your own founder shares by selling secondary stock to these hungry funds that are coming down market and over into healthcare." And that is true to some degree. But if you're in healthcare, you're probably trying to create a public good and the idea that that wealth creation is going to stay in the hands of, you know, you and these super wealthy funds, as opposed to be available and your for employees, regular, your employees and, and, and pensioners and regular people who buy regular stocks. Like mm-hmm. if all the big, you know, if they're stuck only owning General Motors, you know, or whatever else is left on the stock market and all the rocket ship stocks that are interesting and taking risks aren't available to them, you know, we're in for. A, it doesn't feel that good. And B, we might be in for an existential crisis as a country. Like what you're doing is you're cutting out mainstream Americans from the American dream, um, which is to own equity and see it, you know, rise, to rise yourself with your country. And uh, so I still think warts and all, people who get to where they've got a stable, profitable business you know, north of 150 million in revenue should do it, go public. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting about Athena Health was companies that scale struggle with innovation at some point, and they just become very flat, uh, lose ideas. But you always had this pocket that I just remember it was called more disruption, please. And it was like, you would invite entrepreneurs to do something unique in the healthcare industry. So it just seemed like there was always that innovative culture where you were trying to bring in, you know, bright minds from the outside to think of ideas to help disrupt healthcare. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think you have to be blowing yourself up so that you take the job away from others who may not be as graceful about it. Um, and a lot of what I ran into, you know, we were we were the first internet-based, maybe the first internet-based read-write service of any kind. Uh, you know, industrial strength, read, write, business operations on the internet were not common in 1998. 
Um, and so we ended up with a very monolithic code base that was hard to partition into services and was hard to uh, get other people onto. Um, it was easy to get users and practices on the sort of front end software users on, but we wanted to get whole computers onto it, and, or I did, and that was what I felt was coming. And uh, to replatform AthenaNet so that that could happen was a very large use of time and money that didn't generate specific results for a while. Um, I think now they're they're doing better with it, um, but that uh, that idea came out of more disruption. Please trying to see if we could get these newer companies attached to AthenaNet and and sort of part of a larger ecosystem, digitally connected ecosystem. And of course, Zeus is picking that thread up and taking it all the way to 11 and saying, how about that's all there is? How about it's just APIs and it's only other people's compute? And there are no traditional medical group users being sold onto, uh, uh, onto Zeus. And, and that's what you know, that's what I'm working on today with with the with my with my colleagues at Zeus Health. Well, that perfect segue. So Zeus, the, the company you're building now. Um, so what is the what are you doing now? Like what's Zeus? Zeus is uh, you know, healthcare needs a Spotify. Like we all tried iTunes and it was great, it was better than CDs. But contrary to the firm convictions of the late Steve Jobs, we we didn't really need to own the songs and like write our labels on like, this was the white album and I saw this concert and whatever. Steve Jobs needed to do that, but the rest of us actually, the idea that every single song sung by every single artist at every single nightclub could be available in one single thing. And all we needed was a, we could turn our digital handheld database into a digital handheld lens search engine and just keep searching up and down this giant landscape of, uh, of unified songs, unified directory of songs. That was better for most of us, and we went there. And uh, healthcare, <laughs> nobody likes having their own partial collection of the medical record events of Jonathan Bush. Everybody would like to actually, if I'm going to take care of Jonathan Bush, I'd actually like to see all the songs, you know? Right, exactly. And so everybody agrees that this is a joke. But what business model perpetuates people doing better financially in the short run, working towards that common model. And what Zeus has done is said, hey, you 4,000 digital health companies that have you know, targeted use cases, I'll go get all the data the law will allow on your patients and fill in the other areas around your targeted use case so that you can do a better job. I'll make it frictionless. And where you either are required to or want to, I'll make your ability to share with other people that are taking care of that patient effortless, frictionless, instantaneous. Um, you'll be able to subscribe to a feed on a patient the way you can in a Slack channel or a podcast or all the other aspects of our life where we're used to being able to turn on a spigot and stay in real time. Um, we're going to be able to do that in medicine. And so that's, that's the strategic intent of Zeus. The primary invention is the common operational data store. The Zods, the Zeus operational data store. But there are many uh, sort of modules, maybe many doorways onto the Zods. There's the data uh, aggregation and enrichment service that goes out and gets the claims and medical records from old men from the hospitals and labs and pharmacies of the past. 
Um, there's the builder library that allows you to build out your own CRM and EMR workflows for your teams to use, like as if you built your own EMR. Um, there's a national identity directory that allows you to, uh, you know, figure out uh, which Betty Smith is which and and make sure you uh, keep the, the Betty Smiths separate. Uh, all of those utilities are um, in service of getting entrepreneurs in digital health through the commodity parts of their build really quickly so they can get to work on the unique parts of their build, which will get them better valuations and get them to their mission faster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's it's needed. It's obviously uh, your investors agree, but yeah, it's 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 like Stripe, right? What they did for payments, like yes, yes, what what right? I mean, now you look back and like, of course, you know. But it was just like as as simple of a transaction that VentureFizz has had throughout its years. I used to use PayPal for credit card processing. It was a nightmare. And I'm like, how could PayPal not understand that? Like it would deny credit cards constantly. As soon as we moved to Stripe. Everything just worked, and it was all like yeah. back-end infrastructure APIs that you didn't have to worry about. Just worked. That's it. You got it. That's that's what healthcare needs: some shit to just work. Yeah, and you're doing all the tough stuff of getting all the records, like because that's a one important thing. Like, there's a there's a 21st Century Cures Act that's kind of bringing together this common record for patients. If I understood it correctly, well, it's the Cures Act basically is a law that so there's HIPAA. We've all heard of HIPAA, right? The Health Information mm -hmm. Portability and Accountability Act that says a doctor, a prescribing doctor, is allowed to go to other prescribing doctors and demand data on their patient. Like you got to share with me, and here's some standard message formats for sharing. Cures says that the patient can do that too. I don't need the doc. I can just say, no, I, I, I don't have a doctor. I just want my records to go to my whoop bracelet because I want to merge my chart with my sleep and I want to do my own analytics. I want to use this other app that needs my medical record data to, to, uh, to work, right? I'm, I want to lose weight and I want my Noom, you know, my Calibrate app to, um, to know my chart. Right. And so what what cures does, it says, yeah, anybody a patient designates is allowed to subscribe to a feed on that patient. And, and it uses a more modern uh, data standard than HIPAA does, um, which allows more real time updates. And uh, that's where we're you know, really excited to see a, a democratization of medical record data and of entrepreneurship around that democratization. So where where's the company at now? Like you, you closed your A round, uh, like size of the company in terms of employees, growth plans ahead. We are 60 people, um, about well, majority engineers. And then after that, some product managers and a couple of dopes like me with spreadsheets trying to figure out how to look important. Uh, and uh, we are focused on these 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 companies that can deliver care and write code in the same roof under the same roof, and um, the first the first uh, products, the first stories, the first workflows are various versions of arrival. So you get a new member. Um, so there's a registration workflow to get a new member, and then you want to ask them about a hundred questions to figure out how to treat them. 
right? You've all had this when you go to the doctor's office, you get the clipboard. When you when you join Noom, you know, there's this cool interactive sequence. When you join Calibrate, you get a questionnaire. These guys all uh, are trying to baseline you. And the answers to almost all of their questions exist somewhere in your medical history, but they have no idea how to get it. And if they could get it, they couldn't format it. So what Zeus has said is, hey, use this API to build your workflow. And underneath this API, it's all fire native. It's this new standard. And we're going out in the world and turning all the data that exists in all the hospitals and labs and connectors into the same framework, same data framework. So it'll look like you typed it in yourself into your own EMR. The machine will be able to read it as if you were collecting answers to a survey, you know, in your native app environment. So that's the that's the arrival. And then, you know, what's a referral in healthcare? It's really that arrival all over again, right? Now I've I want I've you've arrived at me, let, let's say the primary care app or uh, doc or the, you know, the calibrate coach. And now I want you to, I want to send you to the calibrate prescribing doc or to the uh, lap band surgeon or the whatever it is. And that whole arrival has to happen again, right? So how can we make those handoffs that all of us are so familiar with uh, and that we hate uh, go really well? That's our first set of stories is all those moments of arrival. And then the second is just basic CRM for care. Just We call it PRM, patient relationship management. Uh, So, you know, you text your care team instead of going to your doctor and the right person on your care team knows it's their turn to respond and they respond and there's these threads and threads turn into problems and problems turn into care plans and care plans are made up of tasks and the tasks get done. You know, this is the, these are the building blocks of modern sort of digital first medicine. And uh, you can build out those workflows on Zeus now pretty quickly and easily in a pretty low code or, or, or efficient front end code kind of way. So what's the culture like working at Zeus? Like, like what's the day-to-day like? Oh, it's miserable. People are afraid. Uh, You know, there's no, everyone has to say nice things to me. Uh, Pretend ideas are mine. There's a lot of reporting. So you have to write daily. GPS reports. reports, TPS. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Um, No, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's cheating because it's very hard work. And so by and large, the people who can do it have had a lot of training. Uh, and so it's a very uh, uh, liberal, classical liberal workplace. Um, lots of response, you know, as much responsibility and autonomy as people want, you know, only coaching, you know, almost no direction, uh, forced direction setting, because um, no one knows the answer and everybody's equally uh intelligent you know so it's a it's a neat it's a neat environment and for me you know going from having 5600 employees to 60 i went from you know less than 5% of my life in the act of creation um to 65% of my life in the act of creation uh and that's true of everyone you know everybody you know our general counsel is a product manager on legal bullshit contracts as a service. You, know, you could literally take our contracts and use them for your customers. Everybody at the company is in, is productizing everything they're working on as its own discrete product. You know, the, the data operational data store team 
that's a product that it's the data store that sits behind all the APIs, but also people can just write to the data store with their own API. Uh, it's a, it's a really, uh, it is all the extraordinary things that are possible in this tool-based development environment uh, with, you know, I mean, none of the customers, none of the revenues, but uh, none of the taxes of the old way of doing things. And uh, I, I find it to be very inspiring. So, you know, we talked about Athena Health. Um, you're now building a company that could even have a, a greater impact on healthcare. So, so what does success look like you look like for you with, with Zeus? Like, like, what do you think is that end? Spotify. Yeah. I want to see a data graph, not, not for everyone, for people who want like, Hey, I, I want, I never want to be given that freaking clipboard again, you know, and there's a coalition of companies like the early days of logging with Google or whatever else. There's a coalition of companies which do a lot of care. You can actually in America get continuous always on care where you never duplicate anything because there's a backbone connecting it all. That, that is my, after that, I'm out. I probably stayed at Athena too long. I, I'm going to get out before I get fired this time. Uh, and once I see that data graph, I'm going to just be the happiest guy, uh, in the world. Now you're, you are incredibly busy because you're also executive chairman of Firefly Health. So what is Firefly Health? Yeah. Firefly is essentially, uh, that what, what you look like if you eat the dog food we've been talking about exclusively. So it is, it is a complete health plan that sits on top of more of a traditional you know, at no network, national network health plan that is uh, virtual first. So it is, it is emotional health, mental health, physical health, specialty care, all uh, available instant on, always on, instantly available uh, through an app uh, and, and through hybrid. So, you know, you have these interesting visits on Firefly where let's say I'm your Firefly doctor, right? And Keith, I, I, I've gone back and forth, but I still am not sure. You might have a, you know, appendicitis. So I'm going to open up my control panel and see your location of your app says you're one mile from a participating Firefly Urgent Care. I'm going to book you into room three. Just go in, show them your app right now. I'll meet you in there. Then the nurse practitioner or the PA says, oh, you're a Firefly. Okay, I'll go in. And Dr. Bush is now going to say, hey, uh, uh, Georgina, can you palpate uh, Keith's abdomen? Are you feeling any hot tenderness? You know, can you get all the way down without a without a pain response? And she'll, you know, do it. Nope, he's he's soft and supple and tender in all four quadrants. Okay, great. We know it's what I did. And then Firefly will pay, you know, eighty bucks to that urgent care. No claims, no registration, no forms. Done. I've just given you a physical exam. Imagine without me, right? Your doctor says, oh, you better go check in urgent care. Start all over. And that urgent care is going to say, you know, smoker, you know, do you wear a seatbelt? You know, whatever, the, <laughs> whatever the, as if, you know, you're an alien, right. which you are to them. So that's the kind of thing that Firefly has perfected. And they can now charge, they can provide employees and, you know, they're licensed in 50 states, but they're really good in four states. Um, complete comprehensive health plan care for about 25% less. And it's just a lot better. It's just, I have it. Um, my whole family's on it. And 
<laughs> I, I can't tell you, as a middle-aged man, all kinds of things go wrong all the time. And I would never bother to go make an appointment to go to the doctor to talk about it. I just, the, the, the day off of work and the thing, and they don't quite get it. And then I get it wrong and it comes up a few days later, but now what, am I going to go back and make another appointment? Like, no way, right? But with Firefly, I'm always on. I get too many cricket. I okay, it's happening again now. And within 10 minutes, someone goes, okay, you know, take a picture of it. Or, okay, do this. Or, okay, I'm scheduling you for another uh, another kidney function test tomorrow. Go right to Mount Auburn on your way to work. You know, like it's just, it's continuous as opposed to uh, big, dumb, slow episodes. And in a connected world, like there's bad stuff about a connected world. There's anxiety and depression and feeling left out and all kinds of, but there's good stuff too. And we should, we should use the good stuff. And Firefly to me is the greatest collection of the, the good stuff from an always on connected world I've ever seen. Oh, it sounds, sounds like a picture perfect dreamy world. Absolutely. So well, we, we fuck up all the time. I mean, you know, it's new, but, uh, but net net it is cheaper and absolutely it is better. So yeah, it's exciting. All right. So we, talked about how much money is going towards the healthcare industry to hopefully create new ideas, to fund new companies that do transform yeah, for, the Yeah, Did we say $44 billion in just one year? Like, holy Moses. Absolutely. That's a lot of insane. VC. It yeah. is. I mean, you need $5 million to stand up a pretty good company. I don't know how many 5 millions there are in 44 billion, but you can stand up a lot of shit with that. Absolutely. So what advice would you have being that you've gone through this multiple times now uh, for first time founders that are trying to embark in the world of healthcare industry that's regulated and it's a little, you know, like there's so many challenges of dealing with this industry. So what advice would you give to uh, first time founders? Well, I think in general in medicine, um, and I didn't, I am at Zeus not following this advice. Uh, I didn't when I started it, I'm, I'm now gliding back towards it. I sort of had a little bit of arrogance and hubris that I didn't need to do this first. But the advice is, let me start with that. The advice, find a job to do, a humble job to do in a piece of the healthcare system and do the job. Don't get more complicated than that. What is your job that you're going to do for people? If you were not a, if you were a fembot who could go in automatically and you know vacuum or do a referral or execute a visit, find out what the atomic unit, find an atomic unit of your business that is a job to do, and then build a business around that, as opposed to higher order things like AI or ML or, uh, 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 frankly, platform. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, so what we've had to do is go back and say, all right, we are not a platform company. We are a patient registration and arrival company. That is a job to do that sucks and everyone hates it. And no, most people skip it. They don't try to find out your charts. Even though the law says that everyone who's got your charts is supposed to share it. Almost nobody goes and gets it. They just have a form stack and they just send you 500 questions and have you answer them again because it's just too messy and hard and frustrating. So Zeus went from this grand self-conception to a very humble and specific self-conception. And now we're starting to allow ourselves, you know, two other jobs, you know, we'll do referral, which is the exact same thing as the first one, but it's a two-sided version. And then we'll do 
PRM, you know. So that that I, I, I really can't tell you how many times I see entrepreneurs who have in mind what they're going to be, but don't have a crisp conception of how they could profitably be what they are, what, what, what they are first to get there, right? Facebook is a platform, but it started as hot or not at Harvard. It was a very specific job that everyone was already doing. There was a book, an actual book, and it was actually called the Facebook, and people would sit in it and decide who the prettiest girl or boy was for them. They would circle and tag and talk about, and oh my God, you know, who's Christine Beauchamp, you know, uh, maybe she's, oh, she's a, you know, psych mate, whatever. I'll, I'll try to hang out at the psych building. There was a very specific job to do that then, you know, one could build on because he just did it so much better than the paging through the book, right? We all need to remember that when we start businesses. And I mean, I was doing, you know, Athena started as we're going to run the whole episode of care. We're going to be the first episode of care bundle payment company, right? And they ended up being, well, maybe we'll just check the eligibility of the patient and see if they're covered, you know? And then it's like, well, maybe now we could drop a claim and maybe we could, you know, the the the, the trick in, in combining healthcare missions and business is finding the atomic unit that is a self-contained, that is small enough that you could do it, but is in itself a job to do that other people want done. Yeah, so, I mean, Focus on a problem. Don't try to boil the ocean. Because that's it. I mean, that's absolutely yeah. what a lot of founders do fall into that trap. And, and the other thing I always said, don't oversolve. Like if you're doing it by yourself on a habit trail in the background manually, that's okay. You know, as long as you can imagine how you'll automate it. Like getting the job to do from the other person's perspective right is more important than actually all of the invention that comes after that in healthcare. Yeah. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? What apps? I'll tell you what I can live without. I deleted uh, TikTok and Instagram about a year ago. And uh, that's been amazing. Uh, I've got the, you know, I've got some kids on the uh, Apple, the share of photos. So I, you know, I have my own little family share, but uh, what a lot of my life back, uh, not using Instagram or uh, TikTok. Um, so I can live without those. Um, what, what do I use a lot if I, oh, Audible. I love Audible. I love Audible because I have no time and the idea of being able to run or walk and be told a story, especially for a dyslexic, but even just anybody with time constraints, that adding up a second function that is complimentary, it means I'm not running sprints. But I'm 52 and my, I've got bursitis. I mean, I shouldn't be running sprints anyway, you know? That is an app that just, what a, and the talent pool that's come out and started to read these books. What a beautiful uh, addition to my life that has been. Um, obviously, uh, 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 Uber and Lyft, that's a miracle. Um, the reuse of all those cars and people's time and just soaking up, turning anybody who's got a car into 38 bucks an hour and, and tucking it into their life is so inspiring to me. Um, and then uh, ForeFlight. ForeFlight is my absolute favorite app. It's a, a flight planning app uh, that works better than all the flight planning apps on my airplane. You know, the actual avionics systems on the plane. It's just, 
intuitive and real time and dynamic and sophisticated and uh, and wonderful. And I use it for I, for weather. And when I'm riding on a commercial flight, I'll load the same. You know, I'll look it up, and there will be the flight plan, and I'll actually follow the flight. And I use it to plan my own flights. Uh, make sure I don't put too much weight on the plane and all that stuff. It's, it's a wonderful F O R E F L I G H T, and it's a it's owned by Boeing, but it's a great story. It was a bunch of kids who were like, "Shit, there's the weather service." Like they publish these fees. We we don't you know we can just subscribe to the weather service over here, and the ATC system is now publishing their you know uh, the tail numbers, the the squawk squawks of all the uh, the transponders like. <laughs> We could build uh, we could build all this just on free feeds, you know, that the government publishes, and uh, and they took it to eleven. I mean, it's just incredible. And real pilots, uh, you know, an airline all the way down to kooks like me flying to Maine on weekends uh, uh, use it together, and it's a wonderful fellowship. Well, my next question was going to be like, so what else do you like to do outside of work? You're a father of seven. Uh, I, we just got a taste of it, so you like to fly. What else do you like to do? Fly to see the kids. I, seeing the kids uh, is the is the greatest. Uh, it's really, especially now that there's, you know, I've got a 26 year old and a 23 year old in New York City, and they're sophisticated and they're amazing. And you know, the one in Brooklyn is having dinner parties, and the one in Manhattan is in ropes and gray and crushing DocuSign for Bain Capital or whatever. Like, and they're like, I I, I can barely like they come home and they're sensational, you know, and got this boy in Colorado, who's at Colorado college, who's captain of the soccer club. And he's so creative. And he's just a, I don't, I don't, there's something about, and then you don't see him as much. So when you do, it's like, whoosh, it's, it's, it's really fun. And the plane helps with that, you know, flying to see him. And then hey, maybe you'll fly home with me. You know, I got the plane. It's sort of like, cheating a little bribery to get them to hang out with me. Um, so that's, and then I have some new babies and, and that's amazing. Um, but I think kids are amazing. Plank businesses, they just, they don't do what you want, but they're still there uh, the next day and you can try again. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great work you've been doing as an entrepreneur and, helping to uh, improve our healthcare world, which is desperately needed. Thank you, man. Well, I hope you find us some great people. All you geniuses watching, come on, man, we need you. Take care. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.